listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, it's good to see you. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I missed you last week. Thanks to Will for doing a fabulous job in Mark chapter 9. My community group and I were at Highland Community Church last week and uh, serving alongside those great folks there. We had a, it was just a wonderful time of seeing the gospel in action in um, a difficult and a needy part of our city. And thank God for that church family, for Rob and Carrie Strickland. He's the pastor there and for what they're doing. But I'm glad to be back with you, with my uh, faith family. Well, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to Mark chapter 9. We're going to finish Mark chapter 9 today, and we're going to start in verse 42 and work our way through the end of the chapter. As you're finding Mark chapter 2, and if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to use one of the Bibles that's in the chair in front of you. There's, there's little Bibles there that you're welcome to use. In fact, if you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to, to keep that Bible and make it your own. Let that be our gift to you. And if you're not used to looking up passages in the Bible, you can find Mark chapter 9 on that Bible on page 845. And we'll be reading in just a second the last eight verses, nine verses, and then taking our time to think through them. Well, today is one of those days, and the topic that we're going to look at in Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50, is one of those topics that is one of the reasons why we preach through whole books of the Bible. Because if I can confess this to you, I I would be prone or tempted to just not wake up on a Sunday morning when you have a bunch of delightful looking people on a beautiful spring day in Columbus, Georgia, where the birds are chirping and everything is blooming to open up my Bible and talk about sin and hell. But the, the Bible talks about these things and Jesus talks about these things often. And, and so because I and because the other pastors and elders here love you, we feel constrained to, to preach the whole Bible and the difficult parts of the Bible. And so uh, today is, is going to be, I think, one of those Sundays that we kind of need to buckle up our seatbelts, put our big boy and big girl pants on, and, and listen to what the Bible says to us. If you're visiting with us today and... Uh, your main objection to Christianity, maybe you know yourself not to be a Christian and you were invited by somebody and your main objection has been that maybe you grew up in you know, a place where just all of the preaching was sort of a hellfire and brimstone and, and so your, your main objection to Christianity is that all the preachers do that whenever you went to church is talk about hell. Well, just know that this is a special sign of God's providence for some reason that you are here today and that... Uh, we work our way through the books of the Bible, and this is in the Bible, and it is good for us. And so know that um, there's no arrogance or pride. There's no joy. In fact, this has been kind of a miserable week for me to be reading this text over and over and thinking about it and thinking about people that I love, that are in my family, people that I know are loved ones of yours, uh, children and parents and husbands and wives that do not know Jesus, and to think about the eternal consequences of passing from this life to the next without Christ is a terrible, 
and dreadful thing to think about. So know that there's no, there's no sort of joy in this at all. I pray that as we think about these things, that God would give us and me in particular a, a sort of broken-hearted boldness to think about these things and that it would have an effect on us to stir our hearts with passion for Jesus so that we might worship him better. And if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, that God might even use the severity of these words today to cause you to turn away from yourself and trust in him. Well, let me read Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. This is Jesus speaking, and he he says these words as Mark records them. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Well, before I pray, I think that the outline of these words from Jesus can be summed up with two statements, and this will sort of inform our our time as we work through this text. I think we see two things here. We see the seriousness of sin, and we see the horror of hell. And as we work through this text, we'll think about these two things, the seriousness of sin and the horror of hell. And then I want us to settle and end our time on four implications or four effects that I think that these two truths should have on us. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us and help us understand this text better. Father, I thank you for your word. We believe it as Christians to be breathed out by you. Therefore, it is perfect, it's holy. It's without error, and it has complete authority for us. By your Holy Spirit, you have preserved it. You've superintended it through the centuries, translated into many, many languages. And we can know with great confidence that this word is your word to us. And Lord, in particular today, as we look at what your word says about, what Jesus says about a very difficult truth of eternal judgment, I pray that you would give us the humility to put ourselves under this word and not to put ourselves over it in judgment and dismissal, 
I pray, Lord, for Christians in this room that you would stir our affections for Jesus. I pray that these words would not give us arrogance or pride, but it would break our hearts and it would cause us to see that we've been saved from a dreadful torment. It would cause us to worship you more passionately and be more grateful for our salvation and Christ's death on the cross. I pray also for Christians in this room who have dear ones, some very close to us that do not yet know Jesus. I'm sure that describes all of us in this room that are Christians. I pray, Lord, that this would be a sort of an ammonia, a smelling salt to, to wake us out of our doldrums so that we would be more fervent in prayer for the souls of the people that we love and that we might communicate in wisdom and graciousness more effectively the good news of the gospel to them. I pray also, Lord, for people in this room that are not yet believers in Jesus, whether they are consciously aware that they are not a Christian or whether they think they are but are not. I pray that by your kindness, Lord, you might use these severe words to again be a sort of smelling salt, to, to wake us up, to, to cause your holiness and your goodness to all of a sudden, maybe for the first time, come into high definition so that that person would turn away from their sin, turn away from their self-trust and believe in Jesus. Father, would you do these things? And Lord, I pray for myself that you would give me a humble and broken-hearted posture as I communicate these truths. I pray these things in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. In this passage that we just read, as I mentioned, I think we see the seriousness of sin and the horror of hell. First, the seriousness of sin. It might be helpful for us to to just take a second to think about what is sin. Well, providentially, as we're working through our catechism that Robert read, we're on question number 16 of our catechism as our our year-long question, 52 questions, one corresponding with each week of the year, 52 Sundays, 52 questions that we're working through. The catechism that we're working through is a, a compilation of different historic catechisms of the church. And today, by God's providence, the question is, we didn't plan it this way, it just, again, by God's providence, what is sin? And and Robert read it for us, I'll read it again. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. Now, that's a word, sin, that is sort of thrown about, especially in the Bible Belt South, a lot. And I think that what happens is is that as people who grow up in the church, many of us, not not necessarily everybody, I didn't grow up in the church, but for many of us that have grown up in a church, the sin just becomes a sort of compartment. It becomes a, a thing that kind of the bad people do, and we don't really have a sort of personal concept of of sin, and and we don't necessarily have a global sort of God-centered concept of sin. One way that I found helpful as I was just reading and doing some, some, some reading this week, one illustration I came across was to think of our lives a bit like the solar system that we live in, and that in the middle of our solar system you have the sun 
around which all of the planets and everything that's sort of floating around out there is rotating around the sun. And everything has its place in their orbit around the sun. But if one planet, say if Venus or Mars, just decided, I'm going to disregard the law that God set up in the natural universe and I'm going to get off of my orbit, that would cause collision with all sorts of things. And havoc would happen in the solar system as things stopped orbiting as they should around the sun. Well, that's the way it is with our lives. We were created by God, and we were created to orbit around Him and to make our lives a reflection of His goodness. But mankind, all of us, from Adam and Eve to every person in this room, except for Jesus, who's the perfect God-man, has got out of the orbit of of God being the center and the consummation of our solar system. And so for some of us, that getting off of that orbit is maybe more obvious, maybe it's a more public sin that is more easily classifiable, maybe some sort of uh, coveting or, or stealing or some sort of infidelity that has a sort of immediate and obvious and cataclysmic consequence in our life. Or maybe it's just one or two degrees off. Maybe it's a more internal sort of self-righteousness where we begin to orbit around ourselves as the center of the universe rather than God. And although that might not show up as maybe obviously as, as a more sort of public sin does, nevertheless it causes us slowly but surely to get off of orbit and for our lives to eventually disintegrate. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. I think most of us are probably familiar with him, a British author and great thinker. He was a Christian. He had some different views. In fact, he had many views that I think we as as faithful Bible-believing Christians would probably disagree with. But he did have a, a keen mind about the nature of God and about our relationship with God. And he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. Listen to this to this description of sin from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain. From the moment a creature becomes aware of God as God and of itself as self, the terrible alternative of choosing God or self for the center is opened to it. This sin is committed daily by young children and ignorant peasants as well as sophisticated persons, by solitaries no less than by those who live in society. It is the fall in every individual life, and in each day of each individual life, the basic sin behind all particular sins. At this very moment, you and I are either committing it, or about to commit it, or repenting it of it. We try, when we wake, to lay the new day at God's feet, but before we have finished shaving, it becomes our day and God's share in it is felt as a tribute by which we must pay out of our own pocket, a deduction from the time which we ought, we feel, to be our own. I think Lewis is hitting on something very true there, that deep in our hearts, whether our sin is obvious and public, or whether it is more internal and religious and self-righteous, we all at our heart are worshiping the idol of ourselves over the creator of the universe, our God and Father. And so what does Jesus say to us 
about this sin. What does Jesus think about sin? We, we see this in the text. Jesus says, and he gives us sort of two, two layers of sin. There's a, there's a communal aspect to our sin. He says that if, if one of us causes one of these little ones, and by little ones I don't think it just means little children. I think it means, it means a, maybe a new Christian, but I think, I think it would also be true if it was just anybody. He says if, if we are the cause of somebody else to sin or to get out of orbit with God, it would be better if we were to tie a great stone around our neck and jump off a boat in the sea. And then there's this personal aspect of, of sin. Jesus here speaking in striking tones is saying that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Gouge it out. I think we just need to breathe in. I think, I think it's obvious what Jesus is saying here. He's not, he's not calling for us to literally amputate our hands and our feet or to mutilate our bodies. But he's speaking metaphorically to show us the, the serious of sin. That, that sin is savage in its nature and it cannot be contained. So we need to cut off the part of our lives that are infected with sin. And we must get radical in our fight against sin. Just a, a picture of this from my youth when I was a little boy. I, I, I have an older brother. It's just me and my older brother. He's three years older than me. And like most older brothers, he was a master at tormenting me and playing with my mind. Uh, we, in fact, we grew up right on the Mexican border, El Centro, California, by the way, which if you were uh, looking at the news this week, was voted as the number one worst place to live in the country. Uh, ten cities in my hometown. There was a bunch of major cities like Detroit and Cleveland and all of these things, and my tiny little town in the bottom of California made the list of all these big metropolitan areas as the worst place to live. Oh, okay, thank you very much. Uh, but I, I grew up right on the Mexican border. My brother would tell me, look, I mean, I was eight or nine. I mean, he was, just, he was just a sick, just warped little child to be telling, telling his little brother. But, you know, he would say things like, have you heard, you know? No, what's that? And he says, well, there's, there's gangs across the border that are kidnapping eight-year-old children and <laughs> taking them across. And I should have clued in that he was just messing with my mind because after I turned nine, he would say, did, did you hear? They're now kidnapping nine-year-old boys and taking them. <laughs> Just terrible. But he would, any time I ever cut myself, scratched myself, which oftentimes was at his hands, by the way. He was the reason I was cutting myself or skinning my knee or whatever. He would look, inevitably look at the cut, and he would sort of go, hmm, looks like gangrene. <laughs> I mean, like, and I would be in this fear that I was going to have to amputate my finger or whatever part of me that was cut. And Jesus is, is saying that. He's saying that, that sin, it, it, it spreads very quickly like gangrene in our lives. And, and the anecdote to that is not to sort of coddle it or bandage it or cover it up, but to cut it off. I just want us to take in before we move on and we need to see we need to breathe in with severity and with humbleness how Jesus thinks about sin he says it's not something to be coddled with and it's not just these big public things that we see it's this 
As C.S. Lewis says, it's this inner self-life that causes us to worship ourselves rather than God. So that's what Jesus thinks about sin. How do we think about sin? I mean, just the language there is foreign to us, isn't it? To cut it off, to gouge it out, to tie a stone around your neck and jump into the ocean. No, we, we build unbiblical categories for sin. We, we sort of separate things into socially acceptable and then socially unacceptable, don't we? And generally, all of our sins are in the more socially acceptable category, right? I mean, we see this. We see this. I think played out. It is. It is rampant in the news today. We see this played out in just the issues of human sexuality. We take something like homosexuality, and we categorize that, and we put it in completely socially unacceptable and incompatible with with anything related to Christianity. But yet we're quick to excuse the man who's downloading pornography week after week or cheating on his wife. And as long as he sort of shows some act of contrition or some sort of repentance in some way, well, hey, you know, I mean, that's just kind of the part of the struggle. But we have no such grace towards people who are struggling with other manners of human brokenness and sexuality. In fact, I think sometime this spring and summer, especially since it's such a huge issue in our nation and our culture right now, I'm going to take a Sunday to just set aside and look at the gospel and how it answers social, or especially sexual brokenness to include homosexuality. And let me just say as a little caveat here, although this message is not about sexuality or homosexuality, I think that human sexuality is a complex thing and there's brokenness all across the spectrum. There's same-sex attraction, and there's heterosexual sin. And I believe that a person can genuinely be trusting in Christ and born again and wrestling with same-sex attraction, just like I believe that a person can be struggling with heterosexual sin and truly be a Christian. The issue, friends, is not whether or not there's sin in our lives. But remember that quote that I always quote from William Arnault, the British theologian back in the 1800s? He said, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not, but that the Christian is taking God's side against their dreaded sin, whereas the non-Christian is taking the dreaded sin side against God. Friends, there's all manner of sin that every person in this room struggles with. Homosexuality, pornography, infidelity, heterosexually, all sorts of stuff, materialism. The question is not whether or not we're sinners. We've got them all covered in this room. The question of whether or not you are a Christian or not is whether you are pardoned by Christ for your sin that you're still struggling with and you're taking God's side against your sin. But we, friends, in our culture, we, we deceive ourselves by, by making these unbiblical categories, Right? And so, so middle to upper middle class Americans will look down the end of their nose at people who vote for the candidate of the wrong political party and wonder how that person could ever truly be a Christian all the while we waste our lives on materialism and trinkets and junk. Friends, how do we think about sin in comparison to how Jesus thinks about sin? When we do this, when we think of sin in these 
biblical ways. In fact, I was even contemplating my own personal default of sin, and I was thinking about how I even use some of my past sins as a sort of joke. Oh, back in the day. And I kid about things that would have sent me straight to hell had Jesus not intercepted me. When we talk like this, we display our serious lack of understanding of the weight of sin and the holiness of God. And so I think there's probably three groups in this room painting with broad strokes here. But I think that there are people in this room who are probably acknowledging this, feeling convicted by this, wrestling with their sin. As that quote says, they're taking God's side against their dreaded sin. It doesn't mean that we're sinless. It doesn't mean that we still don't struggle with our sin. But you're wrestling against sin. You're trusting in Christ for your imputed righteousness. You're in community. Your heart is repentive and humble. But then there are people in this room who are probably thinking, this is the second group, oh, I'm not that bad. Who's this, What's this clown? Who, where'd he get off talking like this to me? And then there are people in this room who I think a third category would be if, if you only knew how bad I really was. In fact, you, you think that there's no way that God could save me because, yeah, Brad, I acknowledge I am, I am a sinner. In fact, I'm far worse than you think. My real concern is those, those last two groups, the person who thinks, what are you talking about? What? Who's this cat? I'm not that bad. Yes, you are. And so am I. And then my other concern is the, the third group type of people who might think that you're beyond God's reach. That is not true. That's a lie from the pit of hell. His arm is not too short. He is mighty to save. Well, that's the seriousness of sin. Now, let's look at the whore of hell. And, and friends, what's the connection between these two? Notice that Jesus grounds his argument in the serious, about the seriousness of sin, not merely because it would result in the less optimal life here on earth. See that, friends. See, this is, this is what soft-pedal consumer Christianity in America will sell you. That God is a mere improvement to your life. It's like life 2.0. And Christian bookstores are full of books that point you in this trajectory. That God is there to help you live a more optimal life for these 80 or 90 years. Now that may be true, but only in a third or fourth or fifth level. Jesus grounds the seriousness of sin in the eternal consequence of sin. Do you, do you see that? Eternity is what we are created for. And thus we should long for eternity with Christ. And we should fear, yes, fear, eternity without Him. Look, did you notice? Look at what Jesus says in verses uh, 43 and 45 47 there where He's talking about uh, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And then what does He say? It is better for you to enter life. He's not saying for you to continue the rest of your earthly life. He's saying it's better for you to cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge your eye, and enter into life, which is, in this context, eternity, than to die separated from God forever in eternal torment. 
Do you see that? Jesus pictures life here as not these 80 or 90 years, but as eternity. Do you see that, friends? Death is a passageway to life. In fact, we call it the afterlife. We should call this pre-life and that life. And I think that this this logic of Jesus um, really should cause us to wake up. Listen to what he says in Luke 12, verses 4 through 5. Listen to this. This is so foreign to most Americans. I mean, we are such a coddled culture, aren't we? I mean, let's be honest. We, we, we just want to you know, act like everything should be happy and go lucky. Listen to what Jesus says about who we should and should not fear. Luke 12, 4 through 5. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, that's not the only thing that should describe our relationship with God. Of course, we should love him and worship him and feel like we can draw near to him through Jesus. All of that. But friends, God is holy. And like a good father who we love to run to, but also who we are scared of the consequence that he will punish us, God is like that. We should, with reverence, fear life without him, which then brings us to the horror of hell. What is hell? Well, a simple definition is that hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for those who do not trust in Christ in this life. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for those that do not trust in Christ in this life. Five statements that will help us think more biblically about hell. First, hell is punishment. Hell is punishment. Listen to Paul writing to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 5. And he is writing to encourage them because they are being persecuted and afflicted because of their faith in Jesus. And he's writing them to tell them that those that are afflicting them, that don't believe in Jesus, will get their day. They will be punished. This is what he writes in chapter 1, verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, which the Lord Jesus, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hell is punishment. Hell is also destruction and death. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Hell is not only a place of punishment, it's a place of destruction and death. And let me pause here and say that some people believe that hell when the Bible speaks of it as being a, a, a place of destruction, that God's judgment is being destruction, they interpret that to mean that it means that we sort of cease to exist after the judgment. 
And it's, it's a theological concept called annihilationism, that God annihilates us if we're outside of Christ. I don't think that's biblical. I think that hell is not only a place of destruction, but it's a place of eternal punishment. And, and we'll read about that in just a second, and I think that's a very important biblical uh, truth. That, so when we look at the word destruction, it means the disintegration of our life, that when we are away from God, our lives are destroyed. It doesn't mean that they cease to exist. It just means that they are in utter ruin. So hell is punishment. Hell is destruction and death. Hell is also banishment. Matthew chapter 7, that same chapter, just a few verses down. This is a familiar passage. Jesus is talking to people, and he says here, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So hell is banishment away from the presence of God who alone is good. And then fourthly, hell is a place of suffering. Listen now, just one chapter over in Matthew, Jesus, he's remarking about the faith of the centurion where he says that I know, Lord, that just one word will heal my, my servant. And Jesus is lauding, he's, he's encouraging the faith of this centurion as compared to the faithlessness of his people. And in Matthew 8, verse 10, he says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith, speaking of the faith of this man who believed that Jesus with just one word could heal his servant. I tell you, many will come and from, from the west, from the east and west, and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, meaning his own people, the Jewish people, will be thrown, not all of them, but those that don't trust in Jesus, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we could, I could spend a good part of our time, but I'll spare you. The, just the really the the dreadfulness of it, we could go through many verses where Jesus speaks of hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. In fact, we read in our text in Mark 9 that it is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And then finally, Matthew chapter 25, which may be a very familiar passage to you about the end of time when Jesus will come and judge. Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus separates the sheep, meaning Christians, those who have trusted in him, from the goats, meaning people who are not Christians, who have not trusted in him. And he's using that analogy of sheep and goats to represent Christians that have trusted in Jesus and non-Christians who have not. And so in Matthew 25, verse 31, Jesus says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And 
And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. And so let me pause here before I read about the goats. We're not saying that we're saved by our... Jesus is not teaching us that we're saved by our good works here. He's saying that this is what the life of a person who is trusting in Jesus will necessarily to some degree look like. It will cause them to love other people, even the least of these. And then in verse 41, he says, Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed. You cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So hell is a place that is eternal. Let me keep reading verse 42. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And then listen to verse 46, speaking of the eternal nature of hell. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so he's saying that eternity in heaven will go on forever. An eternity away from him will go on forever as well. So we might ask, why is the punishment of hell an eternity when our sins are just for a lifetime? We might ask that question. I think that's a valid question. Well, I think that I would answer that by saying that we need to understand the nature of God's holiness and the nature of sin that sin and the punishment for sin gains its worth or its gravity not because of the nature of the one doing the sinning, but because of the nature of the one who is sinned against, right? So if you have, we lived in a medieval time and we were all subjects of the king and we were all paupers and we were slapping each other in the face, well, that would be like, man, don't do that. I might slap you, slap you back. Like, stop slapping me, dude. But if we broke into the castle and we slapped the king on the face, the punishment would be a little bit more severe, wouldn't it? I mean, okay, you guys aren't medieval people. You're military people, most of you, or at least you live next to one of the large military. If you spit on a four-star general, the consequences are going to be greater than if, you, than if you spit on a private who's just joined the army, right? We all kind of get that. And on an infinitely infinitely huger scale, sin against an infinitely holy God is worthy of infinite punishment. But secondly, I would answer that by saying that there's no reason why we should think that sinning stops in hell. In fact, there's some scriptures in Revelation that talks about in Revelation 22 how those that continue to do wrong continue, those that do wrong continue to do wrong. And in this, this imagery that John is speaking about in Revelation 16 about wrath of God and judgment of God being poured out on those who do not repent, it says that even when they're being judged, they are cursing God and still not repenting of their sins. Friends, judgment does not stop sin for those who haven't repented. It continues on forever and ever. And so a judgment that continues on forever and ever is just. And maybe the most personal question might be, How could a loving God allow people 
to go to hell. How could God be both wrathful and loving? Now, several responses to that. I think that God's holiness and his justice, God's love and his wrath are not things that we can just sort of separate. I mean, we all want justice except when it might be pointed at us or in a way that we don't want it to be pointed. And we can't siphon off God's characteristics and separate his holiness from his love or his judgment from his justice, his love from his wrath. And when we do do that, we actually diminish. I think the question in of itself, although it is a valid one and one that, that we have all thought, we actually diminish the degree of God's love specifically for his people. Because if, if God didn't need to be wrathful on sin because of his holiness, then Jesus didn't really need to die for us. And so we actually diminish God's love for his people in an attempt to make God more loving. But I think probably the closest thing we get to a biblical answer, and this is a hard one for us to swallow, but it's in the Bible and it's true. Paul gives us a glimpse into the answer of this in Romans chapter 9 and verse 22. Listen to this. And in Romans chapter 9, Paul is building an argument for the utter grace of salvation that we are saved, not because of anything that we have done, but solely because of God's sovereign grace. And in Romans chapter 9 and verse 22, Paul asks this rhetorical question because he knows the answer. He says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So what Paul is saying there is that God has, in his sovereignty, even allowed sin and judges sin to be a display of the greatness of his glory and love for his people. So friends, we cannot separate God's love from God's wrath. They are two edges of the same sword. God demonstrates his love by being just against rebellion for him and thereby maintains the splendor of his holiness. And so that leaves us with this very biblical truth that there are only two possibilities for every person regarding eternity. When we die, we either go immediately to be with God forever in heaven or we perish in eternal judgment forever in hell. There is, listen to me, friends, there is no such thing as purgatory. That is an unbiblical concept. And maybe many of you grew up in a church where they taught that. There's no such thing in the Bible as purgatory. There is no nebulous never-never land for mostly good people where moral Americans kind of go. We either die in Christ and are trusting in Jesus for our right-standing With God, we're trusting in his goodness, not our own, or we are not trusting in him and we are outside of Christ. And so then let's finish up our look at the text by just looking again very quickly at verses 48, 49, and 50 before we end with with just some considerations of what impact this should have on us. Were you confused a little bit there by verses 48, 49, and 50 where Jesus says, 
The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And then in verse 49 he says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I mean, it seems like I was tracking with Jesus. He was talking about the severity of sin, the seriousness of sin, and the horror of hell. But what's he talking about with this salt here? I think what Jesus is simply saying there is that all of us will be salted with a certain fire in this life. And the fire he's speaking about there in verse 49 is not eternal hell and fire, but it's the, it's the fire of trials and judgment and persecutions. And he's saying that these have a sort of, uh, these have a, a, a purifying effect on our life. And so he's trying to encourage his disciples by saying that you're going to face trouble in this life. And that's good for you because it sort of purifies you just like salt would purify meat or some sort of other thing. It would be a preservative element. So Jesus is saying that, that let yourself be tested in this life because sin is serious and hell is horrific. And so wrestle with life here and fight sin. So one question before we move on to concluding thoughts. If hell is the punishment for sin... And if all of us have sinned, then why don't all of us go to hell? What has Jesus done with the sin of those who trust in him? Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Peter writes, He himself, meaning Jesus, bore our sin. The seriousness of our sin. All of it. From homosexuality to infidelity to pornography to embezzlement to idolatry to self-righteousness to whatever, to murder, to whatever. Name them all. Jesus bears the weight of those sins for those that trust in His perfection and not our own. He bears it on a tree. That we, may, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So Jesus has taken the sin of those who trust in him, friends. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Just that to believe and prize and treasure and put hope in what Jesus has done, not what you've done. It sounds scandalous it's so free. Do you see that? It's not religion. It's not do this. It's not stop watching that or clean yourself up. Those things come as a consequence of who you love and believe. The gospel is the free grace of trust in Jesus' perfection and not yourself. And so he takes the sin and the consequences for the sin, which is not just a less than optimal life, but eternal judgment away from God for those who believe in him. And he bears the penalty on a tree and rises again in victory over that death and sin and all of its consequences. And so those that are trusting in Jesus, friends, and do that even right now if you haven't done that, look away from yourself, look away from your own works, look away from your own intellect, and look to Jesus because He alone is the one that comes between you and the whore of hell. Jesus is born once and for all the consequences of sin. For those that trust in Him, so that they might be alive and live with Him forever and enter life with Jesus. So what effect, I conclude, I know it's gone long, thank you for bearing with me. 
These are important words. Four thoughts. What effect should these truths have on us? If you are a Christian, this should compel us to love people and tell them about Jesus. (laughs) A biblical understanding of sin and hell fuels our evangelism. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are to persuade those about Jesus, that the love of Christ compels us, friends. And so this should obliterate the categories that we build out for our life. There are no black people or white people or Republicans or Democrats or liberals and conservatives or people that don't think whatever, all these little goofy little constructs that we build to separate ourselves. Friends, if you're a Christian, the the most principal thing about every person on this earth is those that are in Christ and out of Christ. And when we read these truths, it should obliterate pride and give us a desire to see people come to Jesus. It should fuel our evangelism and our love for people. Secondly, it should free us to forgive and release us from bitterness and resentment and revenge. Friends, all of us will be sinned against in in this life, and at times, very severely. And listen to me, some of you have been sinned again in despicable, evil ways, and I understand that. But friends, the truth of Jesus' work on the cross and the reality of eternity frees us to forgive and releases us from bitterness and resentment and revenge in this way because the sin that has been committed against us is going to be handled one of two ways. It's either handled by Jesus if that person repents of their sin and trusts in Him, which means then we have no more claim to vengeance there, do we? If if Jesus has died for the sin that even people have committed against us, Jesus has bore the excruciating penalty of that sin for that person and to release them from the consequences of that. So who are we, friends, to still hold that out there in the cosmic scales of justice because Jesus died for them, but I still need my pound of flesh. And friends, I, I am not minimizing some of you who've gone through terrible things, terrible things. But do you see the weight of this truth? That this releases you from that because Jesus died. He bore your vengeance on the cross. And no, not instantly. This is something that you must work into the fabric of your life through prayer and community and the Word of God. But friends, this gives us the possibility to be released from feelings of vengeance. And then there are people that will sin against us who die outside of Christ. And friends, God is just, they will be judged. That's why Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 9, he says, No, no, do not avenge yourselves, little ones. Vengeance is mine. Friends, this should free us because we know that God is just and justice will be served either on the cross once and for all or in hell for eternity. And when I look at not just the sin I've committed against others, but that others have committed against me, it releases me from personal justice. Thirdly, it makes us, it should make us ferocious in our fight against sin. It should make us 
ferocious in our fight against sin. Jesus tells us to cut off our hands or our feet or to gouge out our eyes. (laughs) But I so often, I so often remain content to waste my life being entertained by a broken culture, to resent people for their beautiful Facebook life, or to waste my life away on the trinkets of the God of our age, which is materialism. This truth should press on me to make me examine through the course of my life whether I am truly in Christ. And so are you saying, Brad, are you asking me to occasionally doubt my salvation? Yes! I think that would be a good thing for the average American Christian to do. In fact, Paul calls for it in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. He says, test yourself. Examine yourself to see whether or you are in Christ. Friends, we can hum along just being comfortable, self-absorbed American Christians and at the end of the day, will Matthew 7, that verse we read, apply to us? I never knew you. Depart from me. I need to feel the force of the weight of not just this general concept of sin, but my sin. And I need to feel the weight that if at any time in my life I'm taking sin side against God, then I may not be a Christian. I need to feel the weight of that. Do I believe in assurance? Friends, I believe in the assurance and eternal security more than I believe that I'm standing in front of you right now. But I believe that one of the ways that God works out the end of eternal security is through the means of the warning of His Word to say, stay faithful. Think of it this way. Think if I I lived on a busy highway. Think if we built a house on Interstate 185, which would be not wise. Property value probably wouldn't be very good. But think if I lived on the edge of the interstate... And my four kids were out in the front yard playing. And I said to them, boys, do not throw the ball out into that interstate because if you run out into that interstate to chase the ball, you will surely die. You'll get hit by a truck and you'll die. Now, I'm a good father. And I know that if I ever saw them get close to the edge, I would jump off of that porch. I'd grab them by the scruff of their neck. I'd slap them on the hiney and I'd say, do what I told you to do. But one of the ways that I would keep them secure is by warning them that if you go out there, you will die, friends. And Christians, Christians who are eternally secure need to feel the force of hell so that God would use that as a means to keep us close to Him. And this should make us ferocious in our fight against sin. So when I'm tempted to download some image, I need to feel judgment in eternity. When I'm tempted to make much of myself and to criticize somebody else only to prop myself up, I need to feel the weight of this because God uses the means to bring about the end of my assurance. And fourthly and finally, this should humble us and cause us to worship God more passionately. When I see the holiness of God and as Springer read this morning from Psalm 96, the splendor of His holiness, it should 
cause me to worship him. Listen to John Piper. John Piper's words on these subjects. He says, when the heart no longer feels the truth of hell, the gospel passes from good news to just news. The intensity of joy is blunted and the heart spring of love is dried up. Friends, if you're a Christian, God didn't save you from a stubbed toe or a less than optimal life. He saved you from the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And this should produce a radical brokenness and a radical humility in your life that should fuel gratitude and worship. And if you're not a Christian, friends, listen, if my tone or my posture, my delivery has somehow been an obstacle to you, friends, I'm sorry. I, I, I speak with this type of force and urgency, partly because that's my personality, but par- but mainly because this text is so serious. And I beg of you, I beg of you to consider Jesus. And I I beg of you to turn from trusting in yourself and trust in Jesus. I'm not asking you for some commitment to this church or for you to do better. I'm asking for you to look to Jesus and trust and put your hope for right standing with the judge of all the earth. I'm asking you to put your hope in Jesus' righteousness and not your own. Would you do that even now? Would you look away from yourself? Would you take God's side against your sin? Would you do that now? Would you believe in Jesus? Would you love him? Would you worship him with us? I beg you, friends. I beg you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take these feeble words. (laughs) And I pray that you'd work them down deep in my soul because I need them. I need these words. I need these words. I need to fight sin with every bit of ferociousness that you've given me. I, I need, Lord, to treat my sin like gain green that will kill my soul, because it will, it will. And Lord, I pray that you'd take these words and you'd use them to be like a spiritual smelling salt and get the attention finally of somebody in this room who does not know you. They came into this room trusting in themselves, consciously or unconsciously. God, use these words of Jesus the seriousness of sin and the horror of hell and the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice and his victory over sin and hell. Use these words, God, to give a new heart and eyes to see and ears to believe. I pray, Lord, that you do these things for the glory of your name and for the eternal joy of your people. I pray it in Jesus' name.